This is Passion with Dr. Lori Batito and John Paul. How do you find passion in a pandemic? Dr. Lori, people's schedules are changed, their habits have changed, where they go to work has changed, and they might even find themselves uh, sick of the people they're seeing so much because they're stuck together longer than normal. You have no idea how many issues people are having, and it's so reflected in uh, in all the people that come to see me as couples. Sexuality is affected, dating is affected, uh, people are ready to throttle each other, uh, uh, so we really need to figure out how to how to handle this better, I think. We're going to dig into that, but let's get to the mailbag first. Love, sex, relationships. It can get complicated. We all have questions. Dr. Lori helps with the answers you need. If you have questions, it's easy to submit them. You go to drlori.com. And Dr. Lori, it's important we, we don't name the names. So if people want to send in their questions and they feel uncomfortable, we're never going to use names. Absolutely. And in fact, even though I see your names, I will never say the names out loud. In fact, even when I see that there's identifying information, like people could find you somehow, I kind of change things around a little bit so that you're not identified. So it's important to people to know that this is anonymous, you know? Yeah, because I think a lot of these questions, many of us have, and we're afraid to ask. And I think when you have a resource like this, and you, you know you're going to be in a safe space, it encourages more people to participate because you might be surprised your question uh, might be one of those things that just gets a ton of reaction because other people were afraid to ask it. So let's go right, right. to the mailbag. We start, Dr. Lori, uh, with a um, person who has a little bit of a, a performance question. <laughs> How can a man train themselves to last longer in bed? What kind of techniques would you suggest and if he needs to self-pleasure himself to improve his control. A lot of guys have performance issues. You're going on a big date or you have a big celebration. You want to make that moment super magical. How, how can guys help themselves maybe last a little longer? So first off, premature ejaculation is probably the biggest concern of men that I see or that contact me. This is is a question that has been asked over and over and over again. And oftentimes the first time the first thing I want to do is uh, put out the facts, right? So a lot of men think because they watch a lot of porn or or they they have these ideas that it should last for a really long time. But if you look at the bell curve of and the the average of how long it takes a man to ejaculate with intercourse, for example, it's somewhere between two and five minutes. So I know men are thinking two and five minutes. That's like nothing. But if you add in um, all of the foreplay and all of that, two to five minutes of thrusting is in the realm of complete normalcy. And in fact, if you speak to women, of course, we're talking about heterosexual relationships here, but if you're speaking to women, that's plenty too, as long as you have given them the pleasure in other ways, right? Because the majority of women don't orgasm through intercourse alone. So having said that, though, there are some techniques that people can learn. And one of the words that has come out and you see a lot of uh, on the internet is called edging, right? Mm -hmm. So edging means getting close to the edge and stopping and then, you know, going back and forth to the edge and coming back. So in my, uh, my field, we call that the stop and start technique. But the first thing you need to remember is that you have to be aware, very conscious of what your penis is feeling. So 
Oftentimes, people who want to last longer will think about baseball, or they'll think about their grandma. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like I'm going to distract myself from this. You know,、uh, and that's the worst thing you can do, actually,、uh, because the way to、uh, to learn and teach yourself is to be very aware of that point of no return, because you need to stop right before that point of no return. So this is a great、um, exercise that you can practice. By yourself, so、uh, you can start with masturbation with a dry hand,、uh, and then you know do this edging a little bit. Go stop and start and stop and start. Once you've mastered this and you've gotten long enough, try it now with a lubricated hand, and then you move on to having your partner do it, and then move on to、uh, to intercourse. So this is you know this is the the major technique that we use. Now the, the old stop and start. The old stop and start. But there are some men we've found, and research has shown that are tend to be very, very sensitive or extra sensitive, and there seems to be some kind of neurological thing at play here with that extra sensitivity. So for some of these men,、um, there are medications that can be used to treat premature ejaculation, even though there's no. Actual medication for this condition, but、uh, they use like、um, antidepressants at a super low dose. That it doesn't treat depression, but just enough to、um, uh, to trigger the、uh, the side effect, which is to delay ejaculation. I would have thought there'd be like、uh, some sort of like spray, like there's a lubricant or something that、uh, slows it down. So that that is true. There is a a numbing spray that you can use, and there's a a few on the market. But again, you know, numbing it, that implies I'm not going to feel anything. And if you if you put a, a numbed penis inside a woman's、uh, vagina, she what what's going to happen to the sensations there? Unless you wear a condom and and what have you. So there are different options. You could try a numbing spray; that may work.、Uh, but to me, that doesn't like get to the root of the learning, right? You want to unlearn something. Well, I think if you go with the stop and start, that makes for some maybe the most fun homework I've ever been given. <laughs> Have fun with that, John. All right, there you go.、We'll、try the old stop and start.、Uh, also in the mailbag,、uh, Doctor Lori, I have been celibate for sixteen years, and I'm ready to break my celibacy, but I don't really. Uh, don't really feel as confident about life as I once did. Is there any advice you can give someone like me? I'm a heterosexual female. I've talked to a lot of women who are 50 plus that really gave sex a break for a long period of time, and I would imagine there are many,、uh, both men and women, that find themselves after a long pause, maybe after losing a partner or breaking up,、uh, they get out of the game, but when they get back in it, feel this exact way. They're like,、uh, Do I? Can I still ride the bike? Right, and they they can feel a bit awkward, but I would want to know, like, is this person celibate by choice? In other words, I've decided to take a break from relationships and dating, or is it by circumstance? So that may make a difference in terms of the person's psychological, like whatever is going on in their in their mind, right? So if they've been living a life of、uh, with a lot of anxiety and depression, and and they've been struggling with mental health issues, that may have put them off,、uh, put a stop to a lot of their relationships.、So、I would. Say that would be something you'd have to certainly look at, but of course, getting on the horse is is never easy, and it's scary、uh, for people, right? So.、Um, 
this is something that you you definitely can work on. I would work on your confidence in in general, maybe with a psychologist. I'd want to find the root of the problem of the of the confidence. If it's not if it's confidence related to other things besides your bedroom performance, um, for example. But you know, in, in, in like in anything, you have to take the risk, right? You have to put yourself out there. Uh, now, you know, I'm sure 16 years ago, you don't have the same access to apps and, and things that you have today. So I would say get on there, get on the apps, get on some dating, um, dating websites. Uh, we're in a pandemic, which means that you have the excuse to be slow, you know, to start mm-hmm. off slow, uh, which I think is a good thing for people, frankly. So just maybe chatting with people, no rush to meet in real life, um, get to, you know, get kind of get your feet wet, so to speak, right? Make sure you have your own rules about dating too, in terms of your rules about sex. Like, think about what what you're comfortable with. If you're not comfortable with having sex on the first date or second date or third date, then say so, and and that's okay, right? It's a, you, you're allowed to have your boundaries and uh, and your own rules about dating. The other thing too is I would work with a dating coach. Like there are people who will help you set up an online profile or uh, help you. Um, like find ways to how to have a conversation. How do you open Mm -hmm. that up? That kind of thing. I would think if you haven't been active for 16 years, I'm envisioning myself. I would think my physical appearance would probably be one of the things that I would be concerned about the most, because if I think of, you know, me 16 years ago, I was a little bit better in shape and a little bit more toned uh, because as you get older, things start to get softer and saggier and all that kind of good stuff. (laughs) But I guess we all have to realize that that that's not ever something that's exclusive to one person. It, It happens to all of us. We all age. It happens to everybody. And having talked to people who date later in life, it is the appearance or the, that those few extra saggy pounds or whatever it is, is not really what, what tends to matter at all, at all. And we have to accept that we are aging. And if we're older and dating, we're not looking for a perfect body or perfection. It's about values, right? You want somebody who's takes care of their health. Great. That's the value that you're looking for. They don't have to be in tip top shape or, or look like they're bodybuilders, but the value of uh, what you put into taking care of yourself is what matters. One more question here, Dr. Lori. Can it be possible to see other women as sexy and attractive without being bi? I kind of find lesbian porn arousing, but not something I would engage in. That from the mailbag. That is so common uh, that you have no idea. Like this is, first of all, there has been research that has looked at what is it that women find arousing when it comes to pornography? What is it that men find arousing? So they did research on, uh, they checked with uh, gay men, straight men, straight women, and uh, gay women. And what they found was that women overall find all kinds of sex arousing, whether it's two guys, two women. They even found that women who watch two animals going at it wow. <laughs> was somehow arousing. Yeah. So, which is very different for the men because straight men were aroused by straight porn, gay men by gay porn, but for women, it was all around. So somewhere we have, I don't know what it is exactly or how to explain it, but it, in no way does it indicate somebody's uh, sexual preferences. Appreciating a woman's beauty or her sexiness 
doesn't make you gay or bisexual at all. Like you have to ask yourself if you're, if you're wondering about your bisexuality, can you picture yourself in a romantic relationship with a woman? Can you picture yourself having sex with a woman? Like these are the things that you would want to look at, but simply fantasizing or looking at something. And that goes across the board for fantasies, by the way, does not indicate one's desire to do something in real life. You know, it's funny because I I think back, my buddies and I, we were at the poker table. This is years ago. And we got into this conversation about porn and it, it it was like everyone kind of revealed like, hey, you know, for porn to be great, the guy's kind of got to be in it. And then, of course, we got in that conversation. Well, if you want the guy to be in it, how does that relate to how you view yourself? Like, does that make you a little bit bi? And it, we, we were having this conversation over poker and, you know, because that, that's a real conversation. But I think the reality is anytime you, you look at something um, to be aroused – I I think as long as it's it's sort of sexy and interesting, um, I don't know that, that there's a man in it or a woman in it or man, man, woman, woman. I, I think of it, sexy is kind of sexy. Exactly. And it dep- each person looks at something different in the scene, right? So are they focusing on the penis? Are they focusing on the act? Are they focusing on, like, so we, it's very, you can't just judge someone's, uh, um, whatever preference in, in pornography and make assumptions about it. So it can be different for each of us for sure. Remember, you can reach out with your questions, love, sex, relationships. We get your questions answered on the next edition of Passion. Just visit drlaurie.com. Passion for learning, life and love. Coming up, sex in the news. What is the age most of us are the most unhappy? We're going to get you that answer. In a pandemic, though, Dr. Loria, I know many people are having this question. In this pandemic, we've been at it for more than a year now. How do we maintain our passion? And obviously, passion is a word that can talk about passion for your job, passion for your family, passion in the bedroom. It's almost all-encompassing. Are the answers to maintaining your passion for anything the same for your relationship, or do you think there's differences? Well, I think, first of all, it's difficult for us to maintain our passion for things that we love to do, right? So people may be passionate about... I don't know, boxing, mm-hmm. for example. I, I'm a, I'm a, I love to box, right? So I've been missing that a lot. So, uh, and I'm not able to go back to that one passion, but I've developed other passions, right? So I've tried to find ways to keep myself busy. And I think it also helps when you're, you can get your mind off of a lot of the stress that's happening because of all of this. And we could talk about, you know, how, how much stress, like unprecedented kinds of stresses, right? Things we'd never really considered before. Um, you know, and how do you find your footing in all of this? But we should really kind of talk about why is it that we are like losing it right now, right? We, we have to think about, um, Think of a pressure cooker. It's almost like all these ingredients, you know, too much time together, working from home, um, anxiety about what's happening, anxiety about the unknown, kids at home, kids learning from home. Like there's a potential explosion almost daily, right? At some point, people are on edge, people are irritable, they may not be sleeping as well. Um, relationship inequities are surfacing. It's like now we're both at home, who the hell is going to do the cooking? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like that kind of thing. So we're these are things that need to be discussed. So what couples are finding 
is that they have to communicate at a level that they were not used to before. Uh, so the healthy couples are doing okay, right? They, they, the couples who had this going before tend not to be, are, are not having as hard a time, but couples who had problems with this, they're finding that it's gotten worse. So we're seeing a lot of breakups too. What are those communication skills that are the basics? Like, obviously, I, I think if you go anywhere, like into a business, into a relationship, into a friendship, uh, social media, a lot of people, when you say, what's the worst thing about it? Everyone goes, well, I wish people would communicate better. And <laughs> I think I think relationships are really the foundation of that. If you're good at communicating with your better half, you're probably good at communicating with someone at work. You're probably good at communicating right. with somebody. So to me, that's a real foundation because communicating with the person you love the most should be the easiest but it's still very hard for many people. So what are the basics that you recommend when it comes to communicating with that person in your life? So first of all, when we hear the word communication, we think about talking, right? Oh, I'm a good communicator, meaning I know how to talk. But communication is about listening, not so much about talking. Uh, so that's that's the first thing, right? How do you listen to your partner? Are you an active listener? Are you focusing on what your partner is saying? Or when they're speaking, are you thinking in your head of a response to whatever they're saying, right? That isn't good communication. So the, so yes, communication is very important. It's harder in an intimate relationship than with, a, say, a colleague, simply because in a relationship there are emotions involved. When you're working with colleagues, less emotions involved, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so part of it is we, we need to, especially in this situation, we have to um, understand and recognize that we have different coping strategies. You and me, we don't cope with stress in exactly the same way. Our language of emotions may be different. And so one of the first rules is to actually validate your partner's feelings. You know, if they're telling you, uh, this is, I'm feeling lonely, for example. If your partner responds with, well, you shouldn't be feeling lonely. Well, what do you want me to do about it? Like, that's not validating a person's feelings. <laughs> it's being defensive, right? And our, right. Nat our natural instinct is to kind of defend our position. Are you criticizing me for not being around? Uh, so really it's about, oh, so I understand, you know, it sounds like it, this is difficult for you and you're feeling lonely or how can I help or, or this would be a, a better way to do this. During this whole crisis situation, I think it's really important for couples to hold like regular meetings, like family meetings, just so that you can try to maintain a routine because our routines are changing, right? So it can be all up in the air. So you have to sit down. Okay. What does your week look like? What does my week look like? Who's going to do what? So that we're not fighting about the stupid little things. That makes a lot of sense. And in that, uh, one of the challenges that moms and dads and dads and dads and moms and moms may be having in this situation is they don't have that ability to get away from their kids like back in the good old uh, pre-COVID <laughs> days. Right. So what are, what are you suggesting for couples to do to find that, uh, you know, alone time where they have that time where maybe they used to go out for dinner and get caught up on, on life and feelings or they, 
you know, maybe went to a movie or a concert or went away on vacation together. How are you recommending couples when it comes to that, that part of connection, do it in this current environment where you really can't do much? Right. I'm having this conversation a lot with people actually, and you're a hundred percent right. What people are saying though is that, Hey, we're spending all day together. Yes, but it's not quality day. It's not quality time together, right? So you may be together 24 seven, but you're not carving out time just for the couple. And so saying, okay, we're going to have a date night in the house. We're going to put the kids to bed and we're going to make ourselves a nice meal or order in a nice meal, have a nice glass of wine, sit on the, on the porch uh, and just talk and just be us or play games or whatever it is. So carving out the time is really important. When it comes to sex, that may be a whole different thing because the kids are sometimes staying up later than you and you don't want, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's a distraction, right? When, when you want to have sex and you're worried that your kids are either going to walk in on you or hear you or, or what have you. So, uh, and we, we used to be able to ship them off to grandma's or go to the neighbors or have a sleepover at a friend's house or what have you. So I think a lot of us are, are kind of feeling, um, a little stuck in that, in that area. Uh, I just had this conversation with a client yesterday and I said, look, get, first of all, get a lock on your bedroom door. I think it's important that kids understand that parents also have their private time and that their bedroom is their bedroom, right? Because mm-hmm. now like kids are, you know, they're watching TV from their, their parents' room and they're coming in and out and, and there's almost like no boundaries anymore. Like it's all one free for all madhouse. Uh, so you want to put in a little bit of order. And if your kids are old enough to understand that, you know, mom and dad need quiet time mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, Put on some music so they can't hear. Put them in front of the TV. Whatever you need to do, uh, but you're gonna have to do. You're gonna have to consciously do this, right? Carve out the time, set it up, schedule it. Whatever you need. Doesn't sound like totally so spontaneous and romantic, but at least you'll be doing something. What about the future? Because so many of us live our lives looking towards the future and we might be anticipating a trip or we might be anticipating summer at the cottage or we might be anticipating uh, being able to do something in the backyard. And certainly the one thing the pandemic has taken from everyone is the ability to look into the future and then it's at it. For those that are glass half empty type folks, they might have a more negative view of the future. So how can couples work together to actually uh, maybe add a little bit of that that carrot that's down the road uh, that they're looking forward to? How do they how do you recommend they put stuff on that calendar uh, when there is so many questions as to whether or not they'll actually be able to do it? Right. Uh, well, one of the things that's important, especially for those who have the glass half empty kind of attitude is practice gratitude. The, and I say practice because it doesn't come so naturally. We are as humans almost naturally negative. Uh, and that's kind of built into our system to be on, like to be vigilant of danger and things like that. So we have to practice gratitude. So every day wake up and say five things that you are grateful for. And they can be little things. It gets you to focus on uh, the little things. We know there's a future ahead. We just have to be patient, and patience isn't always uh, easy. But together, you can say, hey, let's let's make a list of all the things we want to do and we're going to do and we can start saving for and so that you are thinking of the future and not just stuck right here. What is one action item that anyone could do right now, Dr. Laurie, that maybe could ignite a little passion 
in this pandemic with their special someone uh, that wouldn't cost them any money. It would just be simple and they could do it like, say, in the next three or four minutes. What's something you would recommend that they could do that it's not going to be grandiose. It's going to be simple and straightforward. What's something you would recommend? Tell your partner right now what you appreciate about them. I love that you blank. Um, this is what I appreciate about you. Everybody loves to hear nice things, right? What somebody is grateful for. Everybody likes to be appreciated and feel loved. Let's not forget to make our partner feel loved every single day. Quick text, quick email, or maybe even old school, a telephone call. Yep. The headlines to headboards. This is sex in the news. If you ever see a wild and crazy sex in the news story, you're always welcome to uh, send it our way. We may use it here on a future episode of Passion. Just go to drlaurie.com. Uh, Dr. Laurie, there's no shortage of sex in the news on a, a variety of different levels. Let's start with research showing that most Canadian parents are actually comfortable with sex ed. There has been many headlines uh, from those screaming that they're not comfortable, but research saying that Canadian parents are actually comfortable. And they want it. So this was a an article that was published in the Globe and Mail uh, April 12th. It was an article written by uh, uh, Bielski. And it talked about, it, it, looked, it asked parents, right? It, it wanted to uh, look at parents, ask them if they were open-minded about uh, sex ed. And I don't, I don't know if you remember, but in the news there were a lot of uh, uh, kind of rebellious parents who were mm-hmm. saying, don't teach my kid and I want to get, you know, whatever. There was like some heated sex ed wars, especially in Ontario, where they had more, much more vocal, um, critics of, yep. of, of sex education. And I remember they rolled it back to like the old way instead of including, uh, LGBTQ and, and all yep. kinds of, of kind of more modern things. So, uh, that's actually now we, when they did this, um, survey, they asked 2000 parents of elementary and secondary children across Canada how they feel about 33 different Topics including reproduction and safer sex, sexual orientation, gender stereotype, sex trafficking and coercion, and attraction and love. So all very important components of sex education. And most of them endorsed teaching all of these in school. And they also endorsed it starting um, early. So I think it's really important because... Um, Obviously, like there's a couple of issues that have been more controversial, and that is the issue of pleasure, right? Teaching about mm-hmm. pleasure. But hey, teenagers are having sex. Why? Because it feels good first and foremost. Let's try and remember that. Uh, and also gender identity. So those were the two like most controversial um, topics. But then they really... Um, want these things taught as well. So I think it's really important that we understand that the when we see it in the news, the, the vocal minority do not speak for most of us. I think most parents, if they're being honest with themselves, they think back to their teenage self and they realize they felt more comfortable in a room with their peers and maybe a teacher that was really good at their job talking about sex than they did with, say, their dad. Right. Uh, so uh, and to me, sex education, it's a lot like religion. 
I think teaching religion in school is good as long as you teach all of them. Like exactly. you, you teach people about uh, being Catholic or Jewish or whatever so that they can actually get an understanding of, okay, that's this person's perspective. Oh, they practice this way. Okay, I, now I know that. So it takes away the ignorance of everything. Exactly. And sex education is a lot like that. I think a lot exactly. of parents, a lot of parents fear that if you, you're kind of, instead of sexual health education, they think it's sex. Ed- we're teaching kids how to have sex, like sex education. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, it's, it's crazy. But when you, I, what I loved about this is that they also uh, had focus groups with students and the, the young people, what they wanted most was realistic information that would resonate with their everyday um, lives, right? Where in the past, sexual health education focused on biology of puberty, for example, or reproduction or STIs or how to not get pregnant and how to not, not catch an STI. But now we have a much more balanced view where we are looking at what's a healthy relationship. A lot of teens are involved in abusive relationships. We mm-hmm. need to address this. Uh, we need to talk about pleasure. We need to talk about inclusivity, LGBTQ realities, things like that. So we know that the kids want to learn about pleasure, about consent, about boundaries, about safer sex. They need to learn about this because, you know, um, they need to know what's a positive, healthy sexual relationship. How are they going to identify it if you don't talk about it? Well, I think at that age too, Dr. Laurie, most kids, they're just trying to figure out their own feelings. Like they're trying to figure out where they, they sit in the world and their vantage point And is it okay? Is it not okay? Will people judge me if I'm this way or that way or tall or short or fat or thin right. or whatever? And I think the more conversations you have where you show people like, look, we all, it doesn't matter whether you're gay or you're straight. We all have the same insecurities about love and how we treat people. And like when you start getting into those conversations, the other things become less of a big deal. True. And we all have questions and it's okay to have questions. You can't, you can't just know stuff just like that or feel dumb because you don't know stuff. You have to learn stuff, right? And you don't want to learn it from porn. (laughs) No, probably not. And, uh, it will be interesting to see what the next generation, uh, feels about porn because I think their version may be very different than the sort of 70s and 80s and 90s version uh, <laughs> that, you know, not me, but other people have grown up with. Of course, not you. Never you. No, never me. <laughs> What's uh, also, porn? <laughs> yeah, I've never, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> There's a new feminine hygiene product that's aimed at teens, but doctors are not very happy about it. Uh, what do we need to know there, Dr. Lori? <sighs> Oh, yeah. This is, uh, gynecologists have, uh, according to this article, have ignited a social media storm over, um, Vagisil, which is a, uh, a, a name, a well-known name in feminine hygiene products, right? And they're all, of course, always coming up with new things to market. Uh, it's called, this product line is called OMV. Uh, with an exclamation mark, which uh, basically consists of wipes, washes, and serums for teenagers. So for people who don't know, Vagisil kind of has, you know, created these um, uh, feminine, uh, nice smelling things. You know, they, they've kind of sold, uh, they've kind of, cre- I think, created a 
problem to to be able to provide a product right uh, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of it is like vulva shaming it's like oh uh, you know <laughs> vaginas smell bad so you need something to make yourself smell like roses for example right uh, yeah. and and this is the problem is that uh, they're exploiting I feel any any company that does this, I think, is exploiting the insecurities. You just talked about that before, right? Insecurities yep. that, teen, that teenagers have about their bodies, about their oh my god, is my vagina smelly? Or you know, should I be using something? So we're not talking about menstrual products, which are you know, of course, necessary, but these are uh, in terms of um, especially ones that target. Young people, you, first of all, people need to understand the vagina is a self-cleaning organ. It requires nothing but some nice warm water to clean, okay, or some mm-hmm. mild soap. You don't want to put anything in or outside uh, the vagina. The vagina is a very low-maintenance organ unless you have a problem, which, you know, is not it's not like every vagina has a problem, but unless there's like a, a really foul smelling odor, which could indicate a, uh, an infection, that's the only thing you have, you have to, to worry about. But it's vaginal shame and they're making profit of vaginal shaming, if that's a thing. So doctors, I think it is. <laughs> yeah. So gynecologists are not happy with this because this is not the message uh, that they wanted. There was one quote saying, telling women that they have a feminine odor or a feminine hygiene problem is a huge issue in our um, society. And it just sends the wrong message about these body parts. Well, and again, I think this just circles right back to how important a conversation like this could be in sex ed class at a young age saying, look, doctors are saying this, you guys might get hit with this on your social media. You might hear a friend say something about this, but here's the actual truth because kids need to know that because when they learn from each other, that's where they get into the most trouble. Exactly. And, and I think it's scary because it's a social media campaign, right? Which really is targeted. Like we know how the internet works. We know how it targets people. Uh, so we don't want to create a problem where a problem doesn't, uh, doesn't exist. It's, it reminds me of way back when. In my day, it was about douching, right? Same, same, same company, you know, making douches and douches are basically this bottle with a nozzle and you stick it up your vagina, squirt out the liquid and flush everything out, right? Mm -hmm. Like useless, absolutely. And not just useless, but damaging. So, and in fact, women were using this after sex to thinking that they could <laughs> clean out, you know, kind of drain out the, the sperm so they wouldn't get pregnant. And actually what was happening is they were pushing the sperm further up. <laughs> so they were more likely to get pregnant. Um, but all of these products are unnecessary is the, is the bottom line, just unnecessary. Finally, in a sex in the news, the age at which we are most unhappy in our lives which I think if most people think of uh, <laughs> all the years they've lived, we I'm impressed we can get to a number that we kind of all sort of agree on. What is that number? Well, let me just share with you. There was a study done they, they, where they analyzed data from more than 14 million people. That's a lot of people from yep. – 40 different countries, and what they found was that across Europe and the U.S., unhappiness reached its peak in the late 
40s. If you want an actual specific age, that age was about 49 years old. Okay. So in general, what they found is that unhappiness followed a hill shaped curve across the lifespan. When people say the 50s, I'm telling you, John, because you're not there yet, but I am. No. Your 50s are, I'm telling you, once you hit 50, the best years of your life are ahead of you. I'm telling you. Uh, and speaking to all my friends, we all feel the same way, including our sexuality, which is why I wrote my book, by the way, um, which we could talk about later. <laughs> so when you when you say 49, is it the same for men and women? Um, it happens to be. Uh, uh, yes, I think it's it's for all um, older adults. So what it what this article was saying is that young children start out with rather low unhappiness, which increases until the age of nine, 49 years old. So your unhappiness levels increase. <laughs> Subsequently, unhappiness decreases again, and older adults are on average less unhappy than people around the age of 49. So uh, the results support the existence of this whole, you know, midlife crisis thing, you know, that's like a general phenomenon and that happens across different countries. It's not just a North American thing. This midlife kind of crisis actually um, does uh, does kind of happen. So that number seems to make a lot of sense. Like if you think of the average person's life, because like I'm 47. So I've, I'm just to the point now where my kids are a lot more self-sustaining. Right. So that ex that extra pressure of taking care of them, I'm also at that point if I, I think of my life where, uh, you know, you have those moments where you're like, so this is it. This is, this is what it is, right? Like that's my <laughs> wife over there. And those are my kids that never clean their rooms. And, uh, you know, the pandemic has it. So this is what, this is it, right? I don't know if I like this. Like, I don't know if this is good. And I think probably by the time you get to, you know, where you're at in your fifties, your kids are now kind of living their own lives and you're excited to watch that. Like it's like a TV yeah, show it is. that you want, you want to see the new episodes because you're not in every of the, every one of them, which is great. Um, and all of a sudden, all those pressures you have uh, with your spouse, like who's cleaning up and who's running these kids, like they all disappear and you're like, Hey, let's, let's go do some cool stuff. Like we used to, yeah. know, we used to do. Uh, and I think you also realize that you, you have that same moment where you're like, okay, this is it. And you, you have that moment where you go and it ain't that bad. That's like, right. I'm actually pretty happy with it. And then you're, you're, you're kind of free. Right. And you're, we're living longer. So there's a lot more years of happiness. Yeah. That's the beauty of it, right? We have many more years um, of happiness. So that's the good news. The good news, it's okay to get old. And every time you have a birthday, please celebrate and don't worry about getting older because your happiness is only going to increase. So does this mean I am allowed to buy the sports car or I should not buy the sports car? <laughs> I am not making that decision because your wife will kill me. No, thank that, you. <laughs> uh, that's probably true. All right. Coming up on the next edition of Passion, we're going to talk about once a cheater, always a cheater. If uh, something bad happens, is it going to happen again? We're going to get you that answer. Dr. Laurie, is always great being with you. Always amazing. Thanks. Passion with Dr. Lori Batito and John Paul. To submit questions, business inquiries, or just to connect, visit drlaurie.com. Thank you for supporting Passion.